Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Alexander Deutsch about her biography of Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, entitled A Woman of Two Worlds. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, I'm the Director of Collections and Interpretation at the Maryland Historical Society, and I've been a curator of American decorative arts and worked in history museums and house museums for over 20 years. So um, my background is primarily in 18th and 19th century American decorative arts history and material culture. And that gets to something that makes this book a little different from a lot of the other books that we've featured on the biography podcast, which is that it's more than just a biography. I was wondering if you could explain a bit uh, about the book and how it was that you came to write it. Yes. In 2013, the Maryland Historical Society mounted an exhibition that focused on the collection related to the Bonaparte family and that also told the story of Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte. And we have over 600 decorative arts in the Bonaparte collection. That was the inspiration for the exhibition. And in addition to the objects, we have several thousand documents associated with Elizabeth Bonaparte, her son, and grandsons. So we have not only the material culture, but the archival material. And what I had done in the exhibition was to really mine the documents to look for information about the objects in the collection. And what I found is that there was, in most cases, almost a seamless marriage between her documenting her possessions, Elizabeth documenting her possessions, um, and and the history of these objects. And so after the exhibit opened, we received funding for the catalog. And at the time, it the original idea was simply to make an exhibition catalog. So in the usual catalog format. But I had done so much research into Elizabeth's life and her son's life. And then I had begun to work on her grandson's. So it had really gone far beyond just looking at the particular objects. And it was one of the big challenges creating this book was what is this format? And what it became was a hybrid between a museum catalog and a biography. And that's really what makes it so fascinating as a book, which is that you are using her possessions to explain and understand her life. So you have this uh, beautifully illustrated book with uh, numerous photographs, and you uh, are talking about her, her, uh, her goals, her, her ideals, her values through the objects that she owned and through her, the possessions that she had acquired over the course of a very long life. Yes, she lived to be 94 years old. And she begins documenting not only herself, but her possessions as early as 1803. So for most of her life, she is not only writing about her objects, sometimes in letters, but taking these incredibly detailed inventories 
of her possessions. So it's a very unusual situation to be studying someone where not only do you have the objects, but then you can create that resonance with the documents because it's unusual for someone to so um, diligently record their possessions. Usually at the end of someone's life, there might be a probate inventory done of their possessions, but I've never encountered someone who was almost obsessive compulsive about at times annually making detailed inventories of everything she owned. So it provided this window into the objects at the museum and then objects also that uh, ended up being identified in private collections and at some other institutions. And to see that in most cases, the marriage between the documentation and the artifact was almost seamless. I was wondering if you could begin telling us by telling us a little bit about Elizabeth Patterson as a person. Who was she? Uh, uh, what was her family like? And how was it that she came to member to, to, to marry a member of Napoleon Bonaparte's family? So Elizabeth Bonaparte was born into uh, the Patterson family. Her father, William Patterson, was one of the wealthiest men in Maryland. And she was born in 1785, so in the wake of the American Revolution. Her father had married uh, uh, also very esteemed, um, into a very esteemed and wealthy family of Scots. Uh, the, her mother was Dorcas Spear. So this was a marriage of two merchant fortunes, so to speak. And William Patterson had made his money smuggling in large part black powder during the American Revolution. He had started out his time in the U.S. He was a, he had immigrated from Ireland before the revolution. He, after the revolution, decided to not settle in Philadelphia, but to go to Baltimore because Baltimore was a newer city with a lot more opportunities for someone to make their way. And according to his own uh, writing, he arrives in Baltimore with $100,000, which is an astronomical amount of money to have right after the American Revolution. So she's born into this uh, world of the absolute elites of society. And it's a, it, it grows to be a very large family. She's the oldest daughter and in the end, um, only surviving daughter in the family. And Part of the reason that she would have had access to even meet Jerome Bonaparte is because she's traveling in these elite circles, these elite social circles. Uh, to this day, we don't have, I, I've not identified a definitive description of where she met Jerome. Um, but we do know that through William Patterson's connections uh, that she would have known many people who would have had contact with Jerome. He was quite a celebrity when he arrives in Baltimore in 1802. And their meeting generates a lot of attention because Jerome himself is generating a lot of attention wherever he goes. So she meets the youngest uh, brother of Napoleon Bonaparte. He is the, uh, ruler of France. He is uh, shortly to become the emperor of France. And so they had this connection. Is it a, uh, is, is there a romance or is it 
mercenary? That's a fantastic question. And um, one that I can say from what I have been able to find in the documentation, I do believe that from Jerome's side, that there was a tremendous amount of passion and affection for her at the Maryland Historical Society. Many of his love letters to her survive. Unfortunately, her love letters to him um, are not known to exist at this point, although they may very well exist uh, in, in an archive in Europe. And he was seems to be uh, very, very impassioned for her. Um, her Elizabeth's uncle claimed that when she met Jerome, he described it um, as, a, as a child to possess a rattle, that she became obsessed with him, she was determined to marry him. She said that she would rather be his wife for one day than another man's wife for the rest of her life. And I think that part of this almost obsessive, obsessive desire to marry him is that Elizabeth was growing up in Baltimore, which even um, in her very early years, she saw as incredibly provincial. She had attended a school run, run by a French immigrant, a, a woman, a Madame Lacombe, where she had learned actually to speak French. And Madame Lacombe claimed to have been, escaped the revolution in France and regaled her students with stories of Europe and European life. And I think Elizabeth, prior to meeting Jerome, was already thinking that she wanted to have a life that was different from the life that was being outlined to her, which in the early 19th century, there was really one trajectory for a woman like Elizabeth, which was to make an illustrious marriage and then to follow in the path of her mother, which was to be a wife, to tend to her home and to have children and often a great many children. And Elizabeth had watched her mother have pregnancy after pregnancy. Um, we think that Dorcas may have had as many as 13 uh, deliveries. Um, that's not to count the pregnancies she may have had in addition. And this was not a life that I think Elizabeth wanted for herself. She was extraordinarily gifted intellectually. And this becomes apparent in her writings very early on. She attains a level of fluency in French extremely quickly and works very diligently to become fluent in French. So I think that when she encounters Jerome and he is the brother of the first consul of France, she sees this as possibly an escape route from the life that has been outlined for her probably throughout her youth. In addition, William Patterson's relationship with Elizabeth, which is well documented in their correspondence, is an extremely difficult father-daughter relationship. And I think that it was quite an oppressive household uh, that William Patterson was maintaining, very much dominated by his sons, but also uh, his continual infidelities to his wife and um, and also the subsequent ill health that Elizabeth's mother suffered as a result of all the pregnancies. So I think that in meeting Jerome, a door is opened at for Elizabeth and maybe she sees that as a way out um, and a way to have a different life. Mm -hmm. So she marries Jerome and yes. uh, for how long are they together before they travel to Europe? 
They uh, make their first attempt to go to Europe in 1804. So they're married on Christmas Eve, 1803. And they eventually, uh, after a shipwreck and, and some dramatic attempts to make their way to Europe with the goal of meeting Napoleon, who is now the emperor, um, in 1805, they finally arrive in, at that, their first destination actually ends up being Lisbon in Portugal. Um, and that is in the spring of 1805. And the meeting that uh, they aspire to doesn't actually take place. At least it doesn't take place the way that they were hoping it would. No, it actually doesn't take place. And the thought being that if, Napoleon, who had not legally granted his brother permission to marry Elizabeth, uh, which was actually by French law because of Jerome's age, was required because he had been under 25 years old. Their thought was, although Jerome had married Elizabeth against probably his, his brother's wishes, and certainly without his brother's permission, that once he met her, he would be so captivated by her that all would be forgiven. And another dimension to this is that I believe Elizabeth, who was following the trajectory that Napoleon was on, um, the trajectory of power, was so eager to become a member of this family in Europe and to put herself at the epicenter of power and to attain this royal status. Um, based on particularly uh, two letters written by Jerome, my sense is that he perhaps would have been happier to remain in Baltimore living off William Patterson's money and avoided his brother entirely. Um, but I, my sense from all of my readings of these documents is that perhaps Elizabeth pushed this, this potential meeting with Napoleon. Um, I do know that Jerome commissions portraits of himself, a portrait of himself and a portrait of Elizabeth, which ends up being this very famous triple portrait of her done by Gilbert Stuart. And eventually, uh, I was able to find out that his intention with that pair of portraits initially was to send it to Napoleon in 1804 in advance of the visit, because he thought that this would be another way for Napoleon in advance of meeting Elizabeth to be, take, you know, to be captivated by this woman who was so beautiful. And uh, Gilbert Stuart really captures how charming Elizabeth was. Um, again, something that did not happen, but I, I do think that based on this, that I think perhaps Jerome had some anxieties about what Napoleon's reaction would be and thought that he could preempt that prior to, to the actual meeting. The meeting does not happen because Napoleon is sending messages to his brother, very threatening messages. Um, Elizabeth and Jerome are being followed um, by emissaries from Napoleon, and eventually Jerome is scared enough that he has to leave Elizabeth in Lisbon and has to leave her to make her way from there. Eventually, Napoleon browbeats his brother into 
uh, in effect, abandoning Elizabeth. Uh, yes. He seeks a divorce from uh, the Pope because they were married within the Catholic Church. And when the Pope doesn't grant it, Napoleon just arbitrarily divorces them himself. Yes, he does. Um, Pope Pius found himself in a very difficult uh, position of having to say no to Emperor Napoleon, which very few people did. But William Patterson had done something extremely strategic when Jerome married Elizabeth, which is that he had the Bishop Carroll, the highest authority of the Catholic Church in America, marry Elizabeth and Jerome. Even though the Pattersons themselves were not Catholic, William Patterson wanted to ensure that this was a Catholic marriage, possibly because Patterson foresaw that there could be, this could be a contested union. And right there, you see, you've identified two themes in Elizabeth Patterson's life that run through your book. And one is this, uh, this effort to establish and maintain uh, Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte's status in society in general, one that she was naturally and by virtue of her birth, but was not naturally guaranteed to remain in. And also this campaign that she wages throughout practically her entire life to be acknowledged as a member of the Bonaparte family. And this is not just about her, because by the time Jerome is forced to abandon her, She's pregnant with his son. Yes. And there is no question uh, that she was thinking of this legacy um, as early as, as when they are in Lisbon because she is pregnant. Now, at that point, she doesn't know it's a son. Uh, I also think arguably that if it had been a daughter, perhaps that might have been slightly different. Um, but having a legitimate son who in fact was uh, entitled to be an heir to, to the French throne, um, had things gone as they could have gone, um, she held on to this obsessively. And one of the really interesting things that Elizabeth did after she is left in Lisbon by Jerome, and Jerome, I do believe, based on other letters, thought that he absolutely would be back for her. I don't think he thought that would be the last time they ever saw each other. He has to leave her. She's probably about five months pregnant, maybe a little more. She has to find a safe haven. And unfortunately, any country that's allied with Napoleon is turning her away. So she first attempts to go to uh, Amsterdam, where she is turned away. She's not even allowed to disembark from the ship. And eventually the English, as a slap in the face to their enemy, the French, give her safe haven. And she settles in London, where she's receiving regular letters at that point from Jerome. Jerome is uh, obsessed with this idea that she stay private, that she not make herself known widely in public socially um, because he's having great anxieties about already his brother's pressure on him to stay with him, to serve, to serve him. And he also doesn't want any scandals or anything that would uh, cast a negative, a negative quality on this union. 
Um, he also is obsessed with the fact that Elizabeth could you could lose this child, and he writes several times about his fears that she could lose the the baby. Um, she eventually does deliver the child, and what she does, which I think is quite reminiscent of some of the tactics that William Patterson had used to safeguard the union when they were first married. She treats the birth of what ultimately is their son, Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, as a royal birth. And by that, she had known the protocol that the French used for a royal birth with the number of witnesses and the status of the witnesses who needed to be present at the time of the birth. So actually, the birth certificate that she has written for her son, which for the rest of her life and and actually the rest of his life continues to be used in the French courts to support the legitimacy of his birth, actually reads more like the birth certificate of a prince, of a future prince. Um, So already in 1805, at the time that her son is born, already this idea of the legacy and the concern for proper acknowledgement as a legitimate member of the Bonaparte family is already documented as having been in Elizabeth's mind, which I think is quite fascinating because you're talking about a woman who is 21 years old, a very young woman to do something so sophisticated um, as to take these precautions in, in advance of this birth, to have um, ambassadors and other high-ranking individuals there to witness it. And that uh, effort does pay dividends down the road, but when yes, go ahead. Yes, it does. Um, but unfortunately, uh, not to to reveal the story, but it continues to be contested uh, throughout her life and then her son's life. Especially when you get to the Second Empire, and that question of secession comes in, and you have all these other Bonapartes who are uh, uh, who are. maybe it's a bit of an exaggeration to say terrified that these American Bonapartes might get somehow inserted into the succession. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, um, it was legitimate that the American Bonapartes could have, in fact, ruled France. And this was not, this was not a fantasy of Elizabeth's because of the order of births. In fact, um, Jerome, uh, who she called Bo, the son, and then later his son, uh, his eldest son, could have, in fact, uh, ascended the throne in France. So the second family that Jerome, her former husband, um, establishes with his German wife, who, he, who Napoleon had compelled him to marry, the children from that marriage particularly express huge anxiety and go through incredible machinations to make sure that the American Bonapartes are not acknowledged as the civil family uh, by the French, meaning the the true family of the Bonapartes. And yet in some ways that's undermined, not just by Elizabeth's efforts, but by the uh, the fact, as you mentioned, that after uh, Beau is born, Napoleon does support Elizabeth with a pension. Yes, he does. And I think that this is something also that Elizabeth is aware of, that this suggests the legitimacy of the birth, um, which is that she does receive this pension, um, which is actually another example of what an extraordinary person she really was, because 
she recognizes after this marriage is annulled by Napoleon, and particularly after Napoleon's fall from power and his subsequent exile, that she, under American law, is still married to Jerome. And as Napoleon's fortunes fall, so too do those of his family, meaning Jerome. And under American law, all of her money, including the pension she was receiving from Napoleon, would have, in fact, been owned by Jerome because under American law, he remained her husband. So she does eventually divorce him. And and she petitions the Maryland State Assembly. And in 1814, she secures a divorce for herself and becomes independent of any connection with Jerome. And yet at the same time, she maintains the name. Well, interestingly, legally, in the legal documents and in the all the documents related to the divorce, and in fact, in all of her legal docu- documents after the divorce, she is, in fact, Elizabeth Patterson. Now, Napoleon, in her in his negotiations with Elizabeth, which were extensive, when she writes to him to ask for this pension in support of the child... He continues to write back to her, stipulating his uh, demands in order to fulfill the pension. And what I think is is just absolutely uh, remarkable is that in every one of those letters, she writes back and counters his demands. And I think the boldness of that, uh, very few people would have taken on Napoleon and debated him the way Elizabeth did. But one of the things that she does agree to in the agreement which secures the pension from Napoleon is to forfeit the name of Bonaparte, but her son retains it. So he remains Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, but she reverts to Elizabeth Patterson. What happens is that she is already at that point known as Elizabeth Bonaparte. And throughout her life, people refer to her as Elizabeth Bonaparte. In very rare instances, she refers to herself as Madame Bonaparte, um, but legally she, in fact, is Patterson, um, and her all of her probate records after she passes away are Patterson. And the presentation, though, the, the association with Bonaparte is more than just the name, and this is where the catalog elements of the book really come into play because you show the wide variety of objects that she uh, purchased uh, and owned in which she embraces a lot of the status. For example, you point out that she made a a, a very uh, pointed effort to acquire her silver from the same provider silver to the Bonaparte family. Yes. So there was an intention um, that Elizabeth had uh, to represent herself as essentially royal to through the objects she acquires and surrounds herself with and how she dresses that she strengthens this connection with the Bonapartes. And it's interesting because she then instills this in her son who subsequently instills it in his children. Um, and what you end up with and, and how the collection we have at the historical study evolves is that 
throughout these objects, there are references to this affiliation with the Bonapartes. Um, there's the Bonaparte coat of arms on the silver that is commissioned by her son and then later by her grandsons. There are crown finials and other crown elements that are on the tablewares that the Bonapartes use. So again and again, if, if you were someone either looking at her or looking at her son or looking at her grandsons, there was a differentiation to say this is a family with a royal affiliation. Um, and I think it is a very, very interesting use of how we create our material worlds to reflect an identity we want to have, um, whether we have that identity or not. Um, and that was exactly what Elizabeth did uh, throughout her life, in fact, even though she was someone who had very few possessions. What she did have, uh, the, the paintings she had, they were by artists patronized by the Bonapartes. The silver she had, silver paid, the silver that she particularly bought, uh, also silver from silversmiths uh, that were patronized by the Bonapartes. And this really continues in the future generations. Um, I think one of the funniest instances, to, to jump ahead to another generation, is her son, is in Europe in the uh, 18, late 1850s, early 1860s, where he's again pressing suit for acknowledgement by the Bonapartes. And he at one point meets with his uh, half-sister, uh, Mathilde uh, Bonaparte, and he asks to see her lingerie. Um, and this is an incredibly bizarre letter um, where he recounts all of this to his wife, because he wants to go to the exact uh, merchants who the Bonapartes are using and then make sure that the wardrobe he assembles for his wife back in Baltimore is by all of the same dressmakers and milliners. So even down to her undergarments, she's to have the same undergarments that the Princess Matilde has. So <laughs> it's a phenomenon. Um, that I think is so fascinating to me. Um, and, and I feel like I've never, in all my years of looking at decorative arts associated with individuals, I've never seen anything quite like it. It's, it's so remarkable. Um, and particularly her son, who adopts the Bonaparte coat of arms, puts it on absolutely everything. So all of his servants who wear livery have silver buttons with the Bonaparte coat of arms on them. His carriages have the Bonaparte coat of arms on them. Um, some of his servants actually wear pins in the form of crowns um, in addition to having these buttons. Um, it's, it's incredible. And then later when his uh, son is serving Napoleon III, which is a very um, interesting part of this story when you get to Elizabeth Bonaparte's grandsons, um, but the eldest grandson of Elizabeth, when he commissions his uniform to serve Napoleon III, he is granted special permission to have certain elements of his uniform be the same elements that the, the royal family, the, the Bonapartes, are only allowed to have. So this continues, this obsessive desire to reinforce this association with the Bonapartes. Um, translates uh, from Elizabeth all the way through um, 
three gener two two generations later, and in fact, arguably even today, translates to her direct descendants. This association wasn't easy, and this gets to another aspect of the pension. Going back to that, uh, which is that when uh, Napoleon uh, ends the marriage, uh, and he does grant Elizabeth a pension eventually, even with the pension, though. Elizabeth finds herself at an incredibly young age in this very uh, difficult position of being a woman without means. So when we talk about all these possessions that she owned and this effort to uh, uh, to uh, gain objects from these incredibly talented merchants who served royalty, is that it required a large expenditure of money. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit how it was that she essentially recovered from the setback and was able to uh, maintain herself financially in the highest circles uh, of not just America, but, but Europe. Mm. It's uh, very interesting. So she does have the pension, which by anyone's standards, you know, was a tremendous amount of money. It was 60,000 francs um, given to her and she has her first payment in, in 1809. Um, so this is a tremendous amount of money. But she's getting it um, in in payments, so in distributions. She has really no other money other than this. So what Elizabeth does, which I think required extraordinary discipline, <laughs> is that she only is spending money to cover the necessities of her living and her son's living. Um, she begins purchasing properties. Um, she does purchase a property in Baltimore uh, very early on, um, which very quickly she decides not to live in. She decides to rent. And then she goes to Washington where she rents uh, a place to live. She leaves her son with the Pattersons back in Baltimore. And she begins to <coughs> establish a pattern, which is that she believes property, and she later writes about this, is property is meant for investment. Property is not meant to be something that you live in and you lavish money on and you um, furnish with extravagant objects. It's an investment. And this is really where Elizabeth begins building a fortune, which ultimately ends up being over a million dollars at the time of her death. She lives only on the interest from her investments and never touches the principal. And in fact, at the time of her death in 1879, her entire principal of that pension is intact. And to this day, her direct descendants benefit from money that has grown from that pension. So she preserved that. She always lived in rented rooms, which seems bizarre for a woman who eventually is worth a tremendous amount of money. But this allows her to uh, save money in the sense that she's not furnishing a residence to any great extent. She's not employing servants. She just employs servants as she needs them. And she's not encumbered in any way by that, the financial demands of having a residence. And little by little, property by property, she eventually owns uh, interest in over 50 properties in Baltimore. So a, hu a huge amount of uh, property for her to eventually acquire, um, as well as other investments. And 
she had beautiful things, but in the end, she had very few beautiful things. Um, she had extraordinary jewelry. She had remarkable clothing. Um, she kept her clothing forever. There's a lot of evidence in the remaining clothing that's in the Bonaparte collection here of how she remade things over and over again and recycled things. And so there was a lot of ingenuity in creating this exterior vision of herself as essentially royal. But in fact, there's an underlying frugality in that. Um, And then in terms of her possessions, she's almost uh, miserly in the sense that, yes, the individual things are absolutely beautiful and very fine, but there are so few of them. Um, and one of the things that really came out in curating the exhibit for the first time since this collection has come to the historical society um, in 1922, I was really through her inventories able to unravel what did she actually own and what are these artifacts that in fact were owned by her son and grandsons. And when you looked at the percentage, a very small percentage of the overall collection of over 600 objects were in fact Elizabeth's. Um, But what they were, were the absolute finest. Um, And I think one of the most amusing examples is a pair of silver forks that she buys in Geneva when she, on one of her many extended stays in Europe. And she had those two forks for the rest of her life, for over five decades. She has two forks, Um, which is also another insight in that Elizabeth did not entertain Others entertained her, and this was another way for her to cut her expenses. Um, If she could enjoy the hospitality of others, she did. Um, And there is almost no evidence that I can see um, that Elizabeth was even in these rented rooms, whether in America or Europe, even buying a great deal of food. I think she was relying on, on others for all of that, all of her entertainment, all of her expenses as much as she could so that she could save as much money as possible, um, which she in fact did. She saved a lot of money, but as you pointed out, another advantage of the living in uh, rented uh, establishments, boarding houses and so forth, is that she was able to travel to Europe. And yes. when she goes to Europe, uh, uh, you know, it's, you know, having very few items means that she has a very portable life. And it's a life that more people today probably uh, are, are, are familiar with. But back then, it's so unusual. You just, as you described, she, she crosses, uh, she, she goes to Europe seven times over mm-hmm. the course of her life. And she lives there for a period of years. And you mentioned she, t- uh, at times she comes back only because she's unable to, uh, live there on the interest. And, and as you point out, she's living there. Not She's not living in some sort of small apartment. She is socializing with 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 royal circles. She's uh, meeting up with ambassadors. She is, is, is at a level of society where she's expected to have finery and, and, and to present herself in, in such a way so as to be acceptable. Yes, and I think that this is um, something I really admire about her. I mean, her cleverness to, it's a balancing act for her. How do you safeguard your long-term financial health um, as an independent woman, particularly uh, in the 19th century? I mean, I think even for, for women on their own, for single mothers today, this is, this is the balancing act. Um, if you have no one, no one to depend on who's going to help you, which was very much Elizabeth's case. I mean, her mother, her father, had extraordinary amounts of money, but she was not giving her. She was she knew that she was on her own, um, but at the same time, 
she's in Madame Recamier's salon. And, you know, the highest, most elite social circles throughout Europe. And she can't, she has to appear a certain way. And so does her son, ultimately. And so what she has to do is mind every penny, even though there have to be intentional extravagances. Um, and I think that is something that she does really throughout her life, um, is that there's always an eye to the expenses that have to be made because of uh, appearances, but also how can money be saved? How can economy be practiced? And one thing that devastated her over the years was to see that her own son was not frugal. He was uh, not conscious of economy and he was a prolific spender, not to the point where uh, it ever caused any severe damage to the family's fortunes. Um, but it really profoundly upset her to see that she had raised a son who was extravagant, who had a grand residence and eventually two, and who was spending enormous amounts of money on household furnishings and um, other things that she just deemed uh, an absolute waste of money. Um, things like horses and having multiple carriages, all of this, Elizabeth simply had lived without her whole life and, you know, really deemed uh, very unwise investments. So she did instill a lot in her son in terms of his loyalty to his legacy, but she did not instill frugality in him. It's the irony that I, I thought was evident, which was that her success in building up a fortune meant that he never realized the effort that went into it. And so he took it for granted in a way that she never did. Exactly. And the other thing that he had, which she did not have, is he had William Patterson's money because his grandfather, William Patterson, adored him. Elizabeth, at a very early age, had left Beau, her son, with the Pattersons. So he was mostly raised by the Pattersons. And William Patterson was showering money on his grandson. So even when mother said no, grandfather was saying yes. And her Elizabeth wasn't even there to make, to prevent it from happening. So Bo grows up to be actually quite a spoiled little boy um, with a very low work ethic, um, which again, you know, although Elizabeth as a woman didn't have a career per se, she had an extraordinary work ethic when it came to managing her investments um, and also managing her legal affairs. She had a diligence, which really you don't see translating as, as profoundly as uh, to her son. Um, so yes, I think Bo had these, he had never had to be conscientious about his finances the way Elizabeth had. The, her necessity to maintain her status mattered in another respect as well. And it's the respect that we've already referred to, which is that she had to represent herself as a Bonaparte, which for all that happened in Napoleon, the Bonapartes did have a certain elevated status in European society. And, and you also mentioned that back in the United States as well, she was a celebrity throughout her entire life. She was. And anywhere that she went um, was recorded in the papers. Um, she later in her life, she liked to take the waters in West Virginia. 
and it didn't go to these spas. And, you know, of course, it would always be um, talked about when Madame Bonaparte was there. Um, and she was back in the U.S. She was also socializing at a very high level. Um, one of her uh, great friends and companions um, was Jacob Astor. And so she's socializing with the Astors um, at Rockaway Beach. So all of this was in the press. And it's very interesting to see because I spent so much time just searching through newspaper databases, how not only how often she appears in the papers, both American and European, but whenever there's a discussion of the Bonapartes, their rise and fall or, or, you know, their fall and then their subsequent rise with Napoleon III, her story almost inevitably gets entangled with their story. So she, by the public, is inextricably linked to the Bonaparte family. Um, and it's, you know, it is an irony, you know, here you have the, the Bonapartes back in Europe thinking, how can we distance ourselves as much as possible because this, you know, Elizabeth is such a threat to us. Um, but meanwhile, the press sees her as a celebrity and both in America and Europe, always her story becomes the larger Bonaparte story. It's not treated as a separate story. So um, that was something that it goes on for decades and decades and decades um, straight through to the end of her life and even beyond in the obituaries of her grandsons. Her story almost trumps, almost inevitably trumps anyone else's story. It also contributes to her ability to be a guest instead of a host. People want yes. to be to, to meet her. And as you describe, she's a, a woman of 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 beauty and wit. She has, uh, uh, you know, some fascinating tales to tell. And, and, and that adds to her allure as, as a figure, especially in America. You know, we're a republic. We're not a, a monarchy. And we have this very fascinating relationship with monarchy in that respect. On the one hand, we disdain it. And yet, at the other hand, we are constantly drawn to it, even in the early 19th century. Yes. And one thing that I particularly became interested with Elizabeth uh, one aspect of her own writings is that she writes about celebrity and she calls it celebrity. And arguably she is one of America's first celebrities in the sense of how we think of celebrity, um, using appearance to get attention, um, using, using her social status, making sure she's everywhere anyone of any importance should be and that she's always taken note of. All the strategies that make people celebrities in a modern world, she's really employing. Um, she keeps herself in the public eye. She makes sure that she is, even back in Baltimore as, as late as the, the 1840s, if there is the party of the year, Elizabeth Bonaparte is there and she is making a statement. Um, there's a wonderful uh, example of this grand ball that's hosted in Baltimore in the 1840s and it's a costume ball. And she, here she is, you know, a middle-aged woman, not someone who you typically uh, think of getting a lot of attention um, from in the papers, but in fact, you know, she um, does. And what she does is she dresses as Queen Carolyn, um, a wronged queen, a, a, a queen in the history um, of England that's always remembered as a, a, a woman who was spurned. And the papers report this. And so, you know, here's someone who is employing 
the strategies of maintaining celebrity that we now see today that make people like a Madonna a celebrity. Um, or, you know, I hate to make the comparison, but, you know, Kim Kardashian. It's what she's wearing. It's where she is. It's what she's doing. And these are the things that Elizabeth writes about. She also writes something which I think is very profound and probably something that most celebrities feel is she both loved and loathed her celebrity, um, but in some ways was addicted to her own celebrity. Well, she's unlike most celebrities in that she has to actively fight for it. And that goes back to what you were talking about earlier, which is this ongoing campaign that she has to not just maintain her status socially, but also to maintain it legally. And yes. that becomes especially relevant in the 1850s when, uh, when her, when Louis Napoleon, who is her cousin by marriage, uh, is, becomes first the president of France and then in 1852 becomes Emperor Napoleon III. And I was wondering if you could yes. speak to that, that, how that ramped up her effort and the effort of her son to, uh, to make, to confirm their identity as Bonaparte's and, and, and the status that came with that. Yes. So Elizabeth uh, had, prior to that, uh, she had been fighting for Beau's uh, legitimacy and his acknowledgement. But when you have the uh, ascent of Louis Napoleon, there's this extraordinary opportunity once again. You know, the Bonapartes have risen back into power. And her son, who in fact was in terms of defending his legacy, I think that he was very much focused not so much on positioning himself to rule France, but for that acknowledgement of identity. That was very, very important to her son. For Elizabeth, it was about ruling France. And so they join forces and they go on a legal campaign, which takes months and months and months to assemble the documents and they you know, including this, this birth certificate that attests to the legitimacy of the birth. And they go to France. Now, uh, I, I should clarify real quickly the point that you make in the book, which is just how close they were, is that until uh, Napoleon III has his uh, son, the Prince Imperial, in 1856, the next in line for the throne is Beau's father. Absolutely, yes. So... Make no mistake, this is not, as I was saying, this is not fantasy. Um, they are in the line of ascent to the throne. And, you know, certainly Elizabeth has been, and Beau, her son, are cognizant of that, as well as at that point, you know, Beau has a child, has a, one son and later has another son, and he's thinking of it for his sons. Um, so they, in, in the 1850s, uh, Beau, the son, goes to France, um, and at that point, his older son um, eventually accompanies him, and they begin laying the groundwork for this, this legal fight. Um, in the meantime, his son, who we, is known as Morris Jerome Jr., who had attended West Point, who had served in the um, mounted artillery in Texas, he actually agrees to serve in Napoleon III's forces. And what is so interesting is in these remarkable letters that survive, uh, written by both Beau and Jerome Jr., about their time with the Bonapartes in the 1850s prior to the 1861 lawsuit, where they are at the epicenter of court intrigue. Um, the Empress Eugenie 
is so captivated by Jerome Jr., who she thinks to be the most superior of boys, um, so beautiful, so intelligent, so militarily expert, um, that she dotes on him. Um, and in fact, for all intents and purposes, they are treated like Bonaparte's. Um, where the real problems start is that Bo and Jerome Jr. are actually socializing with uh, Jerome Bonaparte. Um, Bo's, Bo's father uh, takes them in and, and is dining with them at St. Cloud. And, um, you know, on the surface, it all seems, well, maybe we're going to be acknowledged as true members of this family. But what comes through in this le- these letters is that, in fact, the backdrop of this is that uh, Jerome's children from the second marriage are absolutely outraged um, that Bo is being received, first of all, uh, that then Bo's son is being received. And now the threat seems very, very real. Um, on top of that, the fact that the Empress Eugenie is absolutely smitten with Jerome Jr., um, which is no secret to anyone, and that well, there's that, that sorry, there's that added element that you describe as well, which is that Jerome Jr. is distinguishing himself militarily. He's fighting mm-hmm. the Crimea. He is uh, he fights in the uh, Austrian War in 1859, and and he you know is not just a you know there for show. He's actually engaged in combat. He wins the esteem of his uh, men, he wins the respect of his commanders, and you have, by contrast, people like Plon Plon, <laughs> who yeah. gets a nickname because he's terrified of the shells, supposedly. Right. And, and and so we talk about the Napoleonic image of being a brave warrior. Jerome Jr. is the greatest exemplar of it. He is. He's also um, so. Here you have Jerome Jr. And just to paint the picture, so uh, Jerome Jr. is stunningly handsome. He is. Uh, lean and muscular, which is something that always the, the emperor empress worries about him being, you know, he's so physically fit and he's too thin. Um, and he, everywhere he goes, uh, whether it's, it's at Sebastopol, he's at the center of some of the harshest engagements. Um, he's, he's enduring remarkably difficult, uh, conditions in, in the Crimea. There's, he's, there's nowhere that Jerome Jr. isn't excelling. And then in contrast, you have the product of, uh, Jerome Bonaparte's marriage with Catherine of Wurttemberg, their son, who ultimately is known as Plompon, who is a short, fat, unattractive, uh, man who is so afraid of bombs that he's actually nicknamed, uh, one of his many nicknames is Plom Plom, was that if he hears the sound of, of bombs going off, he runs. Um, so he misses all these major engagements. Um, one of the more humiliating ones uh, is during the Crimea, where he claims to have stomach trouble. Um, and here you have, in contrast, you know, the epitome of the, the elegant warrior in Jerome Jr. contrasted with... Um, with Plompon. And the public picks up on this absolutely. And um, in fact, you know, Plompon is kind of a laughing stock to the French pu- uh, public, so much so that this creates another problem for the Bonapartes, which is that everyone loves Jerome Jr. Um, and it is pointed out in, in the papers, uh, the French papers, that in fact, the only Bonaparte in line to the secession, who has true military accomplishments, 
is Jerome Jr.? Is this American Bonaparte? And that creates a lot of tension, which ultimately leads to uh, the convening of the Conseil de la Famille, the meal, and the effort to, in essence, arbitrate this out. Yes. And so it ends up being taken to really to the highest level. Uh, the the council of the family, council de famille, um, and what is decided um, is a very complex uh, decision legally, but essentially what it is, is that they do not deem Bo illegitimate by birth, but they do not deem him a member of the civil family. Um, and this is the crucial distinction which takes him out of the line of secession and takes all of future generations of the American Bonapartes out of the line of secession once and for all. So the 1861 decision marks an end of this fight for that kind of acknowledgement. Um, Elizabeth is there for the court battles, uh, even in the papers uh, that they report that the French people were in fact arguably for the American Bonapartes. Um, very much in favor of the American Bonapartes, in fact, because in large part of Jerome Jr., um, who at that point, I should say, has been awarded no, no fewer than five medals by the French government, some of the very, very highest honors that can be given to a French soldier. So the public is looking at this and they're looking at, at the line of secession, which would go to Plompon. Um, and so Elizabeth, though, says that uh, as long as the vote is on power, we will never win this. And she's done. She has devoted most of her life and enormous amounts of money to the court case. And she decides uh, that she is done. And in fact, ultimately, that does lead to her son uh, retiring from the, that fight as well. Well, as you describe it, he's gotten what he wants, which is that while he will never be the emperor of France, he does, as part of that decision, receive that acknowledgement that he is indeed a true Bonaparte and that he deserves the sort of the respect and, and, and esteem that comes with that association. Absolutely. And I think that there's, uh, and, I, and I do write about this, the relationship between Elizabeth and her son is another very intriguing relationship because it is not necessarily a loving mother-son, son-to-mother relationship. But they are united in this fight. And the other thing that does come out through the correspondence and some of the other documentation, there's also money at stake. Um, and for Bo, that was also a factor, too. Um, one of the earlier lawsuits that's pressed is to actually get a legacy that had been left to Bo um, by his uncle, who was a Bonaparte, um, Cardinal Fesch. And that's one of the first attempts in the French courts much earlier to gain acknowledgement so that that legacy could be attained. So the period when Beau and his son are in Europe and eventually Elizabeth joins them to press that 1861 suit, the other thing that that suit does is it once and for all ends any connection that would allow the American Bonapartes to, to even attain the fesh money. And this is two decades later. They're still trying to get this money that has been left by a, a Bonaparte um, to Bo. 
Um, so that's the other thing that the lawsuit does is it breaks any possible connection, not only with them ascending the throne, but any possible connection with any monetary legacy that could come through the royal family. You end the book in, in a very uh, fitting place, which is how you end it with uh, Jerome Jr.'s uh, brother, Charles, yes. who in many respects represents this, uh, not just the, 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 the break with this, in the sense, yeah, as you describe him, he becomes the most American of Bonaparte's. He becomes uh, Secretary of the Navy. He becomes Attorney General of the United States. And, and it is his wife who ultimately donates the collection upon which your book is based. Yes. So it's a very interesting um, psychological study because Elizabeth, after the 1861 lawsuit, um, her second grandson has been born. There's a 20-year age difference between her first grandson, Jerome Jr., and then Charles. And so in some ways, Charles is growing up in a world that is post the turmoil of this fight that his uh, father and his older brother had been really uh, hurled into for most of their lives. He's very disassociated with that. I mean, at the very moments that his brother is serving Napoleon III in the Crimea, he's literally home playing with toys and learning to walk. So there's this distance. And after 1861, Elizabeth has decided she will fight no longer. She comes back to Baltimore and she devotes herself to this second grandchild. But I also think that she doesn't inflict on him this almost relentless reminder of you are Bonaparte, you are Bonaparte, you are, you are European, you are Royal, you know, you are not, um, you are not simply an American. She doesn't do that to him. She really accepts Charles from a very early age as this, this little boy who she absolutely loves. And she becomes passionately devoted to Charles. Um, Charles also at that point his uh, older brother eventually comes back to the U.S. He marries a, an American woman. Um, Charles's life is American. He ultimately never travels to Europe, something that he points out and is quite proud of, um, which I think his grandmother would have just been horrified to think that she had a grandson <laughs> who was so proud that as a patriot he had never been abroad. Um, but Charles also, re- very early on, uh, he wants to be a lawyer. You can see as a little boy in his correspondence that he was a lawyer probably from birth um, in the way he handles things. By the time he's uh, a young adult at Harvard, he's already taken over a lot of the family's financial matters. Um, He really assumes a role as the leader of the family, even though his older brother is still alive at that point. Um, And he becomes the person who Elizabeth is dependent on for assistance with some of her financial matters. Um, And He, in the meantime, he practices law, but he is intensely wedded to social reform and particularly causes that I think would certainly have appalled his grandmother if she had ever taken the time to really pay attention to them. Things like women's rights and the rights of the poor, um, the rights of orphans, um, highly democratic uh, concepts. And Elizabeth was, to her dying breath, a monarchist. And yet she has this grandson who is the true Democrat um, and takes enormous pride in that. And and as you point out, um, makes a career in American politics when 
he passes away um, and he is, is held in such high regard by the people of Baltimore um, as a, a really a, one of the all-time great citizens of the city, um, his wife gifts to the Maryland Historical Society this collection, as you said. Um, but she does it not in honor of this European legacy, even though the objects contained within this in, in no small part are document the European legacy, but in memory to him as a great American patriot. So in the end, the Bonaparte collection comes here in memory, essentially, of a patriot and not in memory of a European legacy, which I think is, is a great uh, irony um, <laughs> and is well documented um, in, in the correspondence. Um, I also think that it's fascinating to me when Charles marries an American, uh, Elizabeth's reaction to this American wife. Now, just to backtrack, when Beau, Elizabeth's son, marries an American, now granted one of the wealthiest eligible women in America at the time he marries her in the 1820s, Elizabeth stops speaking to him. She considers disinheriting him. She writes appalling things about Beau's wife, Susan May Williams, and her, about her dirty blood, how she wanted to marry uh, him because she wanted to cleanse her her dirty blood. And meanwhile, she's the she's it, the it seems, it seems just a, a, tragi- <laughs> a, a tad bit hypocritical considering what she had gone through with right, her brother. Right, and she herself had done this. Um, and then never receives Susan May Williams, never acknowledges her, treats this daughter in law appallingly um, to the to the extent that when her son is dying, uh, Elizabeth is practically barred from the the house, from her daughter-in-law's house. Um, So you have that. Then you have the marriage of Jerome Jr. after he has done serving with Napoleon III and after the fall of Napoleon III, he comes back to the U.S. and he marries an American. But to make matters worse, she's a widow with three children. And Elizabeth writes extraordinarily harsh things about that at one point she says she can only deduce that it's a case of insanity, that he would do such a thing. Um, he, she forever calls his wife the widow Edgar and never acknowledges her as actually Jerome Jr.'s true wife, which ironically is what had happened to her, what Napoleon had done to her. Um, and then fast forward to Charles, who marries an American woman, and Elizabeth adores her. To the point that uh, Charles's wife, there's a wonderful letter at the Historical Society where she says, it, it quite seems like Madame Bonaparte likes me. And we go out on these drives and even she is absolutely amazed that, that Elizabeth Bonaparte is, is embracing her. Um, and in fact, Elizabeth ultimately gives, uh, his, gives Charles's wife many things of her own muslin dresses that date back to the early years of her, her life, um, jewelry, other things that she ends up giving this, this last American wife who she somehow miraculously accepts entirely um, and does not see as an absolute disaster and a rejection of the legacy where she had seen Bo marrying an American and Jerome Jr. marrying an American as the ultimate slap in the face, the ultimate rejection of their legacy. Um, so it's amazing how things turn with the the youngest grandson. Mm-hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? 
Uh, well, right now, I have to say, I'm looking for a project. Um, I'm looking at a couple uh, women's diaries, and my focus has ended up really being a 19th century American uh, women's history. Um, and I am looking for a maverick. I, I think one of the things I really loved about and love about Elizabeth Bonaparte is that she is a maverick and she defies convention. And I think that, you know, for me, I really gravitate towards writing um, about women and about history where people are, are defying what's being told to them is what they're supposed to do. So I'm on the quest for my next major project. Um, but I will say, I don't know that I will ever be so lucky as to have both the documents and the objects all associated with one story the way I've been with this story. So, um, so I'm on a quest. It really, it really is. A, a, you, know, you, you, you do a great job in the book of, of, of demonstrating just how unusual it is. And, and, and the representation of the artifacts and the documents in the book is, is really uh, impressive. Thank you so much. It was a magical coming together of source and, and decorative arts. And, um, and I think that one thing that I'm really pleased with is that we were able to come up with this biography museum catalog hybrid because I think it really was to me the very best way to tell the story definitely Definitely. well Well, uh, Alexander Deutsch thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us I hope you have a wonderful day you too thank you so much